Section three of Out of Mulberry Street by Jacob A. Rees. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three Abe's Game of Jacks, A Little Picture, A Dream of the Woods, A Heathen Baby. Abe's Game of Jacks. Time hung heavily on Abe Seelig's hands, alone, or as good as alone, in the flat on the stoop of the Allen Street tenement. His mother had gone to the butcher's. Chaim, the father, Chaim is the Yiddish of Hermann, was long at the shop. To Abe was committed the care of his two young brothers, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham was nine, and passed time for fooling. Play is fooling in the sweater's tenements, and the muddling of ideas makes trouble later on, to which the police returns have the index. "'Don't let him on the stairs,' the mother had said, on going, with a warning nod toward the bed where Jake and Ikey slept. He didn't intend to. Besides, they were fast asleep. Abe cast about him for fun of some kind, and bethought himself of a game of jacks. That he had no jackstones was of small moment to him. East-side tenements, where pennies are infrequent, have resources. One penny was Abe's hoard. With that, and an accidental match, he began the game. It went on well enough, albeit slightly lopsided, by reason of the penny being so much the weightier, until the match, in one unlucky throw, fell close to a chair by the bed, and, in the falling, caught fire. Something hung down from the chair, and while Abe gazed, open-mouthed, at the match, at the chair, and at the bed right alongside, with his sleeping brothers on it, the little blaze caught it. The flame climbed up, 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 and a great smoke curled under the ceiling. The children still slept, locked in each other's arms, and Abe? Abe ran. He ran, frightened, half out of his senses, out of the room, out of the house, into the street, to the nearest friendly place he knew, a grocery store five doors away, where his mother traded. But she was not there. Abe merely saw that she was not there, then he hid himself, trembling. In all the block, where three thousand tenants live, no one knew what cruel thing was happening on the stoop of number nineteen. A train passed on the elevated road, slowing up for the station nearby. The engineer saw one wild whirl of fire within the room, and opening the throttle of his whistle wide, let out a screech so long and so loud that in ten seconds the street was black with men and women rushing out to see what dreadful thing had happened. No need of asking. From the door of the Selig flat, burned through, fierce flames reached across the hall, barring the way. The tenement was shut in. Promptly it poured itself forth upon fire-escape ladders, front and rear, with shrieks and wailing. In the street the crowd became a deadly crush. Police and firemen battered their way through, ran down and over men, women and children, with a desperate effort. The firemen from Hook and Ladder 6, around the corner, had heard the shrieks, and knowing what they portended, ran with haste. But they were too late with their extinguishers, could not even approach the burning flat. They could only throw up their ladders to those above. For the rest, they must needs wait until the engines came. One tore up the street, coupled on a hose, and ran it into the house, then died out the fire in the flat as speedily as it had come. The burning room was pumped full of water, and the firemen entered. Just within the room they came upon little Jacob, still alive, but half-roasted. 
He had struggled from the bed nearly to the door. On the bed lay the body of Isaac, the youngest, burned to a crisp. They carried Jacob to the police station. As they brought him out, a frantic woman burst through the throng and threw herself upon him. It was the children's mother come back. When they took her to the blackened corpse of little Ike, she went stark mad. A dozen neighbours held her down, shrieking, while others went in search of the father. In the street the excitement grew until it became almost uncontrollable when the dead boy was carried out. In the midst of it little Abe returned, pale, silent, and frightened, to stand by his raving mother. A LITTLE PICTURE The fire-bells rang on the bowery in the small hours of the morning. One of the old dwelling-houses that remained from the day when the Bowery was yet remembered as an avenue of beer-gardens and pleasure-resorts was burning. Down in the street stormed the firemen, coupling hose and dragging it to the front. Upstairs in the peak of the roof, in the broken skylight, hung a man, old, feeble, and gasping for breath, struggling vainly to get out. He had piled chairs upon tables, and climbed up where he could grasp the edge, but his strength had given out when one more effort would have freed him. He felt himself sinking back. Over him was the sky, reddened now by the fire that raged below. Through the hole the pent-up smoke in the building found vent and rushed in a black and stifling cloud. "'Air! Air!' gasped the old man. "'Oh, God! Water!' There was a swishing sound, a splash, and the copious spray of a stream sent over the house from the street fell upon his upturned face. It beat back the smoke. Strength and hope returned. He took another grip on the rafter, just as he would have let go. "'Oh, that I might be reached yet and saved from this awful death!' he prayed. "'Help, oh God, help!' An answering cry came over the adjoining roof. He had been heard, and the fireman, who did not dream that anyone was in the burning building, had him in a minute. He had been asleep in the store when the fire aroused him and drove him, blinded and bewildered, to the attic where he was trapped. Safe in the street, the old man fell upon his knees. I prayed for water, and it came. I prayed for freedom, and was saved. The God of my fathers be praised, he said, and bowed his head in thanksgiving. A DREAM OF THE WOODS Something came over police headquarters in the middle of the summer night. It was like the sighing of the north wind in the branches of the tall firs, and in the reeds along lonely river banks, where the otter dips from the brink for its prey. The doorman, who yawned in the hall, and to whom reed-grown river banks have been strangers, so long that he has forgotten they ever were, shivered and thought of pneumonia. The sergeant behind the desk shouted for someone to close the door. It was getting as cold as January. The little messenger boy on the lowest step of the oaken stairs nodded and dreamed in his sleep of Uncas and Chingajgook and the great woods. The cunning old beaver was there in his hut, and he heard the crack of Deerslayer's rifle. He knew all the time he was dreaming, sitting on the steps of police headquarters, and yet it was all as real to him as if he were there, with the Mingos creeping up to him in ambush, all about, and reaching for his scalp. While he slept, a light step had passed, and the moccasin of the woods left its trail in his dream. 
In with the gust through the Mulberry Street door had come a strange pair, an old woman and a bright-eyed child, led by a policeman, and had passed up to Matron Travers's quarters on the top floor. Strangely different, they were yet alike, both children of the woods. The woman was a squaw, typical in looks and bearing, with the straight black hair, dark skin, and stolid look of her race. She climbed the steps wearily, holding the child by the hand. The little one skipped eagerly, two steps at a time. There was the faintest tinge of brown in her plump cheeks, and a roguish smile in the corner of her eyes that made it a hardship not to take her up in one's lap and hug her at sight. In her frock of red and white calico she was a fresh and charming picture, with all the grace of movement and the sweet shyness of a young fawn. The policeman had found them sitting on a big trunk in the Grand Central Station, waiting patiently for something or somebody that didn't come. When he had let them sit until he thought the child ought to be in bed, he took them into the police station in the depot, and there an effort was made to find out who and what they were. It was not an easy matter, neither could speak English. They knew a few words of French, however, and between that and a note the old woman had in her pocket, the general outline of the trouble was gathered. They were of the Kanaguaga tribe of Iroquois, domiciled in the St. Regis Reservation across the Canadian border, and had come down to sell a trunk full of beads, and things worked with beads. Someone was to meet them, but had failed to come, and these two, to whom the trackless wilderness was an open book, were lost in the city of ten thousand homes. The matron made them understand by signs that two of the nine white beds in the nursery were for them, and they turned right in, humbly and silently thankful. The little girl had carried up with her, hugged very close under her arm, a doll that was a real ethnological study. It was a faithful rendering of the Indian papoose, whittled out of a chunk of wood, with two staring glass beads for eyes, and strapped to a board the way Indian babies are, under a coverlet of very gaudy blue. It was a marvellous doll baby, and its nurse was mighty proud of it. She didn't let it go when she went to bed. It slept with her, and got up to play with her as soon as the first ray of daylight peeped in over the tall roofs. The morning brought visitors, who admired the doll, chirruped to the little girl, and tried to talk with her grandmother, for that they made her out to be. To most questions she simply answered by shaking her head and holding out her credentials. There were two letters, one to the conductor of the train from Montreal, asking him to see that they got through all right, the other a memorandum, for her own benefit apparently, recounting the number of hearts, crosses, and other treasures she had in her trunk. It was from those she had left behind at the reservation. Little Angus, it ran, sends what is over to sell for him. Sarah sends the hearts. As soon as you can, will you try and sell some hearts? Then there was Love to Mother, and lastly, an account of what the mason had said about the chimney of the cabin. They had sent for him to fix it. It was very dangerous the way it was, ran the message, and if Mother would get the bricks, he would fix it right away. The old squaw looked on with an anxious expression while the note was being read, as if she expected some sense to come out of it that would find her folks. But none of that kind could be made out of it, so they sat and waited until General Parker should come in. 
General Eli S. Parker was the big Indian of Mulberry Street in a very real sense. Though he was a clerk in the police department and never went on the warpath any more, he was the head of the ancient Indian Confederacy, chief of the Six Nations, once so powerful for mischief, and now a mere name that frightens no one. Donagahawa, one cannot help wishing that the picturesque old chief had kept his name of the council lodge, was not born to sit writing at an office desk. In youth he tracked the bear and the panther in the northern woods. The scattered remnants of the tribes east and west owned his rightful authority as chief. The Kanaguagas were of these. So these lost ones had come straight to the official and actual head of their people when they were stranded in the great city. They knew it when they heard the magic name of Donagahawa, and sat silently waiting and wondering till he should come. The child looked up admiringly at the gold-laced cap of Inspector Williams when he took her on his knee, and the stern face of the big policeman relaxed and grew tender as a woman's as he took her face between his hands and kissed it. When the general came in, he spoke to them at once in their own tongue, and very sweet and musical it was. Then their troubles were soon over. The sachem, when he had heard their woes, said two words between puffs of his pipe that cleared all the shadows away. They sounded to the pale-face ear like, Ha! Who! Ox Jawai! or something equally barbarous, but they meant that there were not so many Indians in town, but that theirs could be found, and in that the sachem was right. The number of redskins in Thompson Street, they all lived over there, is about seven. The old squaw, when she was told that her friend would be found, got up promptly, and bowing first to Inspector Williams and the other officials in the room, and next to the general, said very sweetly, Jewa and Lightfoot, that was the child's name, it appeared, said it after her, which meant, the general explained, that they were very much obliged. Then they went out in charge of a policeman to begin their search, little Lightfoot hugging her doll and looking back over her shoulder at the many gold-laced policemen who had captured her little heart, and they kissed their hands after her. Mulberry Street awoke from its dream of youth, of the fields and the deep woods, to the knowledge that it was a bad day. The old doorman, who had stood at the gate patiently answering questions for twenty years, told the first man who came looking for a lost child, with sudden resentment, that he ought to be locked up for losing her, and, pushing him out in the rain, slammed the door after him. A HEATHEN BABY A stack of mail comes to police headquarters every morning from the precincts by special department carrier. It includes the reports for the last twenty-four hours of stolen and recovered goods, complaints, and the thousand and one things the official mail-bag contains from day to day. It is all routine, and everything has its own pigeonhole into which it drops and is forgotten until some raking up in the department turns up the old blotters and the old things once more. But at last the mail-bag contained something that was altogether out of the usual run, to wit, a Chinese baby. Pickaninnies have come in it before this, lots of them, black and shiny, and one papoose from a west side wigwam. But a Chinese baby never. Sergeant Jack was so astonished that it took his breath away. When he recovered, he spoke learnedly about its clothes as evidence of its heathen origin. 
Never saw such a thing before, he said. They were like they were sewn on. It was impossible to disentangle that child by any way short of rolling it on the floor. Sergeant Jack is an old bachelor, and that is all he knows about babies. The child was not sewn up at all. It was just swaddled, and no Chinese had done that but the Italian woman who found it. Sergeant Jack sees such babies every night in Mulberry Street, but that is the way with old bachelors. They don't know much anyhow. It was clear that the baby thought so. She was a little girl, very little, only one night old, and she regarded him through her almond eyes with a supercilious look, as who should say, now, if he was only a bottle, instead of a big useless policeman, why, one might put up with him which reflection opened the floodgates of grief, and set the little Chinee squalling, Yow! Yow! Yap! until the sergeant held his ears, and a policeman carried it upstairs in a hurry. Downstairs first, in the sergeant's big blotter, and upstairs in the matron's nursery next, the baby's brief official history was recorded. There was very little of it, indeed, and what there was was not marked by much ceremony. The stork hadn't brought it, as it does in far-off Denmark, nor had the doctor found it and brought it in on the American plan. An Italian woman had just scratched it out of an ash-barrel. Perhaps that's the way they find babies in China, in which case the sympathy of all American mothers and fathers will be with the present despoilers of the heathen Chinee, who is entitled to no consideration whatever until he introduces a new way. The Italian woman was Mrs. Maria Lepanto. She lives in Thompson Street, but she had come all the way down to the corner of Elizabeth and Canal Streets with her little girl to look at a procession passing by. That, as everybody knows, is next door to Chinatown. It was ten o'clock, and the end of the procession was in sight, when she noticed something stirring in an ash-barrel that stood against the wall. She thought first it was a rat, and was going to run, when a noise that was certainly not a rat's squeal came from the barrel. The child clung to her hand and dragged her toward the sound. "'Oh, mamma!' she cried in wild excitement. "'Hear it! It isn't a rat! I know! Here!' It was a wail, a very tiny wail, ever so sorry, as well it might be, coming from a baby that was cradled in an ash-barrel. It was little Susie's eager hands that snatched it out. Then they saw that it was indeed a child, a poor, helpless, grieving little baby. It had nothing on at all, not even a rag. Perhaps they had not had time to dress it. "'Oh, it will fit my dolly's jacket!' cried Susie, dancing around and hugging it in glee. "'It will, Mamma, A real live baby! Now Tilda needn't brag of theirs. We will take it home, won't we, Mamma? The bands brayed, and the flickering light of many torches filled the night. The procession had gone down the street, and the crowd with it. The poor woman wrapped the baby in her worn shawl, and gave it to the girl to carry. And Susie carried it, prouder and happier than any of the men that marched to the music. So they arrived home. The little stranger had found friends and a resting place. But not for long. In the morning Mrs. Lepanto took counsel with the neighbours, and was told that the child must be given to the police. That was the law, they said, and though little Susie cried bitterly at having to part with her splendid new toy, 
Mrs. Lepanto, being a law-abiding woman, wrapped up her find and took it to the MacDougall Street station. That was the way it got to headquarters with the morning mail, and how Sergeant Jack got a chance to tell all he didn't know about babies. Matron Travers knew more, a good deal. She tucked the little heathen away in a trundle bed with a big bottle, and blessed silence fell at once on headquarters. In five minutes the child was asleep. While it slept, Matron Travers entered it in her book as number 103 of that year's crop of the gutter, and before it woke up she was on the way with it, snuggled safely in a big grey shawl up to the charities. There Mr. Bower registered it under yet another number, chucked it under the chin, and chirped at it in what he probably thought might pass for baby Chinese. Then it got another big bottle and went to sleep once more. At ten o'clock there came a big ship on purpose to give the little Mott Street waif a ride up the river, and by dinner-time it was on a green island with four hundred other babies of all kinds and shades, but not one just like it in the whole lot. For it was New York's first and only Chinese foundling. As to that, Superintendent Bower, Matron Travers, and Mrs. Lepanto agreed. Sergeant Jack's evidence doesn't count, except as backed by his superiors. He doesn't know a heathen baby when he sees one. The island where the waif from Mott Street cast anchor is called Randall's Island, and there its stay ends or begins. The chances are that it ends, for with an ash-barrel filling its past and a foundling asylum its future, a baby hasn't much of a show. Babies were made to be hugged, each by one pair of mother's arms and neither white-capped nurses nor sleek milk-cows fed on the fattest of meadow-grass can take their place, try as they may. The babies know that they are cheated, and they will not stay. End of section 3